This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. In a moment where we're facing the great reflection, where so many employees are thinking about making a big move, having women leaders step in in this moment is really critical. But it explains a lot of this sensation that we hear about regarding burnout and fatigue because they're disproportionately doing this additional work in the office context. And we already know because we've measured it in the past, they're disproportionately doing it at home too. That was Alexis Krivkovich. She and Lorena Yee are senior partners at McKinsey. They joined me to talk about some striking findings in the recent McKinsey report, Women in the Workplace. And right after, we'll hear a great story from senior partner Sven Smith. He was just starting out at McKinsey over 20 years ago, before the concept of paternity leave was a widely recognized thing. And he asked to work part-time so he could care for his young daughter. Alexis and Lorena, thanks so much for speaking with us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. As always, this year's Women in the Workplace research covers wide-ranging ground, but today we'll home in on three areas. And I'd like to start first with a topic that many of us have felt personally and painfully during this pandemic, and that topic is burnout. Alexis and Lorena, as part of your research, you and the team interviewed a variety of women across corporate America. I'd like to read a redacted version of one of their stories on the topic of burnout, and then I'll ask you to react. And for context, the woman sharing this particular story self-identified as at the director level in her organization and as a Latina immigrant to the U.S. and also a mother of kids under four. Here's what she told us. I'm feeling long-term burnout. I'm someone who always prided myself on being in control and having strong emotional resiliency. The other day, my manager checked in on me, and I know he's trying to empathize, but he said something like, oh, so-and-so keeps calling me to make sure you're okay. We know you're a flight risk. We're all aware of the social context we're operating in, especially women working in corporate America. For me, I think, am I going to be another one that falls from all this? I'm fighting so hard, but it feels like the odds are against me and it hurts. I find that incredibly powerful as an encapsulation of the battle that many women have waged internally over the course of the pandemic. And the numbers seem to bear that out. The research shows that the burnout gap between women and men has almost doubled since last year's report. Lorena, help us understand the dynamics here. Why are so many women so tired? Well, frankly, women are hanging on. And that is probably the most blunt and simple way to put it. 42% of women report being burnt out. And Lucia, as you mentioned, that is higher than last year and higher than men. So a little under half of your population of women are burnt out. And so that's where we stand today. 
What's fascinating about your story, the vignette, a frankly cold response from her manager, in this case is a man, but could be a woman, of I know you are someone we're trying to retain. I mean, that makes you feel like a number, not a human who's going through an incredibly tough time. And by the way, I don't know how this woman's performance is, but what we see across corporate America is that productivity is an all-time high. And so what we often see is that women are delivering the performance and business results, but at a great personal toll. The report also says that despite their own increasing burnout, women take action more consistently to fight burnout and generally to extend their support to colleagues and reports than men in similar positions. Alexis, what exactly is this extra work that women are doing? That was one of the most fascinating findings this year was how women leaders are really stepping in in this moment to be the type of leaders that companies say they most need and most value. That role that they're playing is really instrumental, frankly, to keeping a lot of companies going. So women senior leaders do 26% more to help their employees navigate work-life challenges relative to their male peers. Similarly, they spend that additional time helping manage workloads. And they're 60% more likely to be focused on emotional support to employees. And these things matter not only because they feel good, But employees say when they're receiving that type of additional support, they're happier in their job and they're less likely to be thinking about a move. And in a moment where we're facing the great reflection, where so many employees are thinking about making a big move, having women leaders step in in this moment is really critical. But it explains a lot of this sensation that we hear about regarding burnout and fatigue because they're disproportionately doing this additional work in the office context. And we already know because we've measured it in the past, they're disproportionately doing it at home too. Alexis, I love that you mentioned the great reflection or some are calling it the great resignation. Lorena, you recently wrote a piece on the third shift for Fast Company. And there's a great line in that piece toward the end, leaders can lurch from a health crisis to a talent crisis, or they can take preventive measures that show they value their people. What are these preventive measures that leaders can take? What should leaders be doing differently at this time? First, let's not just wait for this to play out. And quite frankly, I think unconsciously or consciously, a lot of companies are just letting it wait out. Let's just see what it's like when we return to office. Let's see what it's like in a couple of months. You know, Let's see what it's like when we have another vaccine rollout. That's not the right mindset here. As you said, you face a potential talent crisis because as women and as your workforce overall have been reflecting, you don't know if they're going to make a move. And if they were to make a move and you were to lose half of your women senior leaders, That would take you back decades. So Lucia, to your point, what can leaders do? First, they can acknowledge where we are. Second, they can think about what is the professional progression for these talented women. Third, they can start actually forming 
the work routines of a return to office, not actually waiting for the physical workspace, but actually starting to live into it today. So instead of having completely unchecked boundaries, start to put those in, start to put in the talent management processes, the manager support, and the actual individual experience. And if you need to start asking different questions of your workforce and your pulse, do so. Alexis, is there anything that leaders can do to rebalance the workload that women are disproportionately shouldering in this emotional housekeeping area as well? Well, let's start with the facts because they're so astounding to me that in this day and age, they still hold true. So one in three women and 60% of mothers with young children, just like the example you shared at the beginning, they spend five or more hours a day on housework and caregiving. Five hours a day is at least another half-time job. And COVID sort of stripped bare for us what was already under the surface and well understood by every working woman I know, which is how imbalanced those responsibilities outside the workplace are. Because these imbalances are not well recognized and historically companies have not played a role in feeling a responsibility for that. And so one role for the companies is to be thinking about how do we reflect performance reviews and expectations? The majority of women, the thing they most worry about in that moment is how they're going to be evaluated in their performance. It's not how much extra work I'm doing at home. It's, am I going to be penalized because this will have a hangover effect? And we see the companies that are out in front right now. And what I mean by out in front is outperforming year over year on diversity goals. The companies that are outpacing their peers they are leaning forward on things like childcare, elder care supplements, thinking about flexibility, reimagining the roles, and in particular, focusing more on the outputs and less on the inputs. I don't need FaceTime with you 24-7 if you get a great job done. The second thing they're doing is they're actually rewarding that extra work that women are doing in the workplace. When they show up as leaders who care for employees and their well-being in the ways they disproportionately are holding the responsibility for DE&I, only 25% of companies reward that in their performance reviews. But that 25% of companies is disproportionately those companies that are out in front on DE&I overall. So speaking of DE&I, the story we heard was shared by a working mom who is also Latina. Lorena, can you speak to burnout for women at the intersection, women of color, for example, or LGBTQ plus women? Let's start with something that Alexis just said, which is that in this period of time, women have stepped up. Only a quarter of them say that that extra work was reflected in their performance review, a promotion, or a raise. So you're doing extra and largely unrewarded for it. So that's the start point for all women. To your point, as we look at intersectionality, the challenge is, is that the barriers all around you from the very moment you start are so much steeper. And so you have that extra context as well. So let's make that specific. Let's say you are an Asian woman starting out. Perhaps you are someone like me. I am Asian American. You go through the corporate world doing the extra work, less recognized even before COVID. 
And still now, you are much less likely to be promoted. So we see that Asian women account for one in 15 roles in the entry level among women, but they are only one in 50 in the C-suite. We see that if you're a Latinx woman, if you're a black woman, if you're a woman with a disability, that at each of those intersections, the likelihood of being promoted, the gaps in terms of getting to the next level, what we talked about, the broken rung, they're not just at the entry level, they're every step of the way. And we also know that things like microaggressions or the experience of being an only are so much more acute. So if you put yourself in her shoes for a moment, you have to say, my goodness, she must really be committed to this organization with all of those headwinds, with all of those barriers to still be delivering results and putting in extra. And at some point, are we going to have the ability to recognize that in formal performance reviews, in feedback, and in actually thinking about the way in which we support talented people in our organization? Let's turn to this question of advancement and mobility for women and specifically to the phenomenon you just referred to that we call the broken rung. And here I'll share a story that was again part of your qualitative research. This was shared with us by a black woman who is a senior manager in her organization. And here is what she said. At my company, we have these different leadership programs, which no one really knows about, nor has the qualifications to get into. Tends to be people who are friendly with each other, and people tend to gravitate towards people who are like them and who look like them, right? I've talked to folks that have been here their entire career, white males, and they started off perhaps in the warehouse, now they're at the VP level. I've also talked to a lot of black and brown associates that have been here for 18 years and are barely above the level they were initially at, or they're a little bit higher, but nowhere near their white peers. And no one really to talk to them and say, hey, let me fight for you. So Alexis, Lorena just mentioned the broken rung, and we've talked about that in our publishing before, but for context, for new listeners, what does the phrase the broken rung really mean? The broken rung is the phenomenon that for many people feels really counterintuitive, that the most inequitable, so the most uneven promotion between men and women is not actually at the very top in those coveted C-suite and highly visible leadership roles. It's in fact at the very first step up to manager. It's that very first leap into management and early management that unlocks that entire pathway that that woman was describing of future opportunity where men disproportionately get access relative to women again and again, year over year. So for every 100 men who leaps forward, only 86 women do. And while that difference might feel small, because it's happening at the very start of careers, it's amplified across huge numbers. And what it means is that women's career progression is slowed down right out of the gate, and they never have that opportunity to catch up. It also means that the future pipeline of diverse leaders we would want to see for those later opportunities never appear in equal numbers. And that's why so many companies look at their leadership ranks and say, 
even if I want to now accelerate diversity and representation, I haven't built and cultivated the generation of leaders that I need. So you're speaking to progress over time. What progress have you seen so far? Have we seen improvements in the ways that women are faring relative to men vis-a-vis being promoted over the years that we've been doing this research? So interestingly, the most progress has happened at the very top. In fact, the biggest gain in the past seven years has been in the C-suite, the roles right at the table with the CEO. And that's really encouraging because these are highly visible and high power positions, but it's also where we started furthest from equity to begin with. So we have gained ground, yes, but we're now at one in four. When we start out with nearly 50-50 men and women at the beginning of the pipeline. So while we've seen incremental gains, what we haven't seen is this tidal wave that I think, frankly, by 2021, so many of us expected, recognizing how much diversity exists at the beginning. Some of the bright spots that are out there has been in the past year, even that increased focus that's been placed on race and intersectionality in particular has meant that the gap between women of color and white women has closed some, and that's a really good thing. But overall, we're still so far from where we need to be to get equity. To your point, this is a long game, right? It takes a long time to build a next generation. And so the thought that companies could be in this perilous moment where if we double down, we have the real opportunity to win this moment of reflection. But if we don't, there's so many talented, diverse colleagues in companies that will be thinking about, am I getting the return on the investment I'm putting in when I know I'm giving extra? And I know that my company self-describes, they don't reward it formally that's the perilous moment we face. Let's take that point and segue to our last segment, turning specifically to the experience of women of color in the workplace. And here we'll hear a bit of a story from an East Asian woman working in an entry-level job. Here is what she says. Because I'm the only woman of color on my team, there's a visible difference between me and the other people on the screen, and that can be intimidating. It makes me cautious and more reserved about what I say or do. I feel in those spaces like I'm representing either women or my race or ethnicity, so I don't want to say or do something that could contribute to a stereotype about women or people of color. Lorena, you've written much about the phenomenon of onlyness. Anything to say in response to that story? That story captures being an only so well. It is the simultaneous experience of feeling isolated and also worried and pressure to represent the most positive stereotypes of what makes you an only. You think about that surge of frankly, negative energy, fear, self-consciousness. And by the way, all of that is distracting you from the purpose to which you are in that room, which is about the work itself. And that happens to you at 8 a.m., 12 p.m., 1.30, 5 o'clock. And you wonder why over the course of five years, 10 years in the workplace, 
that doesn't have an impact on you. So on the one hand, you can say, well, I guess the upside, she says a bit sarcastically, is you're driving an enormous amount of resilience and training. But I think we would all say that that's not the way to bring out the best in people. And particularly your quote, your story was of an Asian woman. And what's really interesting about Asian intersectionality is it's often less spoken about. And so that story isn't one that a lot of people understand. And saying, oh, you're the same as a white woman's experience or you're the same as a black woman's experience is incredibly wrong. Each of these experiences have unique dynamics to it. And so then it goes back on you to explain that to somebody. I think after all of that, you're just exhausted and pretty much you're just like, I go back to my burnout of 42% of people are burnt out. Well, you know, I'm exhausted just even thinking about that. Never mind delivering on my job, delivering on the targets, expectations, going home if I have children in the evening and doing my second shift. Yeah. We talked earlier about new commitments to DEI initiatives, which would presumably help or mitigate some of this exhaustion of having to explain and educate colleagues and so forth. Over the past couple of years, certainly, and particularly since the killing of George Floyd, many leaders have become galvanized and spoken publicly about taking action on racial equity. What did the Women in the Workplace research tell us about how that revitalized focus has played out so far in the workplace. The corporate commitment is at an all-time high of money in the United States towards improving racial equality in local communities, across all of the states, across all our urban centers, across rural places. I mean, that's extraordinary. The challenge is that commitment isn't backed up by the experience we see this year. And I'm sad to say that, but the facts tell the story. And what the facts show is that let's just take a very simple concept around allyship. What we see this year is that the number of leaders, both men and women, of any race, of any intersection, they're raising their hand and they're saying, I absolutely want and believe it's important to be an ally. But the very same phenomenon we saw last year, we continue to see which is then we start to ask questions about day-to-day actions that are the actions of an ally, and we see a huge drop-off. So while close to 80% of managers in the United States will say, I am an ally, when we actually look at brass techs, practical actions, offering an opportunity for a woman of color, bringing someone into a circle they weren't there before, actually asking them how they're doing, supporting them, that drops off to the low teens. That disconnect between a recognition and action, that still holds us back in the day-to-day workplace. Lorena, any specific ways you've seen leaders support women of color successfully? Absolutely. Starts with advocating for new opportunities for women of color. How often have you opened an opportunity professionally at a meeting, in terms of a promotion, in terms of opening up your network to women of color? Secondly, Have you really stepped up to go beyond mentorship to sponsorship? By the way, that goes back to my first point, which is opening up opportunities professionally, not just being empathetic. Third, do you publicly recognize and give credit to women of color for their contributions? All too often what women of color, particularly black women, experience is that their judgment is questioned. 
do you actually stand up for women of color when their judgment is questioned in the moment, in the meeting at that time? Another one is, you know, do you confront and question and challenge discrimination when you see it? Do you interrupt behavior that is not inclusive to women of color as it happens? And if you think about these actions, they're incredibly tactical. They're things that happen any given moment of the day. And that is where we fall short. It is not just the big committee decision to promote a woman of color, although that's important. It's also all the grains of sand that hold you back on a daily basis. And that's where real allies shine. They do it when no one's noticing and they're consistent and they show up minute to minute. And if you're a woman of color, you know who those people are and you know how few there are in the workplace. We see that women do twice the sponsorship of their male peers in the organization. A phenomenal amount of lifting up women and men who are below them and rising in the organization as talent. And very often I hear from male leaders, well, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to support this woman of color because I don't have that experience. I won't know what it's like to be a mother, to be Hispanic, in some cases to have a disability, or some other form of intersectionality as well. And my answer is always, if you are a leader, you are the person. Because if you don't, then you leave all of that to someone else and disproportionately what we see to women. We can measure that women who say they have allies in their organizations show much lower levels of microaggressions, much higher levels of overall support. They're happier and they're more likely to stay. So getting this right is actually about unlocking the key to getting all talent feeling like they have a fair and equal shot and excited to stay to see that through. I think Alexis captured it beautifully. It's a huge talent unlock. Instead of thinking of this as a risk to be managed, think of this as an opportunity. Sometimes I feel that we've been talking about these issues since I was, you know, in college, and that can sometimes feel discouraging. What are you most optimistic about going into 2022, coming out of this women in the workplace work? I'm most optimistic about the fact that we're having the honest conversation and that now with a real fact base, we're not talking about these things as perception, but real and measured experiences that companies can't hide from. And they don't want to. As a mother of three young daughters, it gives me real hope because I've been thinking about this question for 20 years, but in 20 years when they're fully in the workplace, maybe we'll have a totally different paradigm for them. What we see year over year is that sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. As Alexis said, you can't escape the facts and that allows us to have a really honest conversation. Sometimes that's not very comfortable, but through that process, we're actually gonna get to a better place. Every year, and this year is no exception, I end the research feeling incredibly optimistic. And while there are stories and vignettes that you share that are incredibly harrowing, there are also some incredible stories. I met somebody who introduced herself to me at a cocktail kind of dinner party. And she said, I heard you and some of your colleagues talk about women in workplace five years ago. And I read the report and it was just an outpouring of emotion of being heard, being recognized, seeing myself, my experiences in the data, knowing I wasn't alone. 
And from that moment, she shared that she made some different career decisions. And then she talked about how she was thriving. I got so much hope from that story. And she's also a sponsor of other women now. So if she's helping five other women, that's five other women that weren't helped before. That gives me a lot of hope. Any examples from your own career of someone acting on your behalf as an ally in a way that helped you move forward? I was just starting out at McKinsey. I was a business analyst. We had been working really hard on a project and I was working on my work stream, heads down. We were getting ready for an executive meeting with maybe the president of the group, someone very senior. And I was so nervous and I show up to the meeting and I sit down and then the other people saunter in and I am ready to answer any question. And the president looks over at the table at me and is like, who is she? Literally says that out loud. I think he thought I was the coffee person. And so he, his question and the body language is like, why is she sitting down at the table? And the senior male partner didn't skip a beat. And he looked at the senior executive straight in the eyes and said, she is in charge of the most important analysis that's going to fix your company. So we'll be following her direction at this meeting. I was the most junior person in that meeting. Let's be honest, my piece was one of many pieces to contribute to the growth of the company. But by saying that, not hesitating to assert my value in that meeting made all the difference. And I'm still so grateful for not feeling like an imposter in that meeting, but feeling like I belonged at that table. And that so easily could have gone a different way. The typical thing that would happen is no one would say anything. It would just be a bystander, like, oh, well, you know, that was kind of uncomfortable, moving on. And you spend the rest of the meeting thinking about that moment or coming back to that moment. It does something to your confidence. And it does something to your confidence the other way when someone steps up as an ally. And that's the power, the positive power of someone actually being an ally to you. Let me share a story of personal sponsorship from my own experience. A number of years ago, I found myself as a new parent in a really challenging project situation. It was a new set of leaders I was working with. There were politics involved, a lot of travel, long hours. It was a really tricky project and it didn't go particularly well. And at the end of it, I recall one of my biggest supporters sat me down for what I thought was going to be a really tough love <laughs> conversation about all the things I needed to improve. And it was a moment where I felt really low in my own confidence. And instead, he started by saying, let's just shake it off. You don't need to take big lessons from this. Not every moment has to be the one where you knock the ball out of the park. I know you and your potential. And I can see everything great you're going to do from here. And for me in that moment, having someone who really was focused on the long game of what I was capable was the thing I most needed. That's really inspiring. Let's close there. Alexis and Lorena, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more on our 2021 Women in the Workplace report, look for the link in our show notes or visit us at mckinsey.com. Flexible schedules are top of mind right now, but not so much 20 years ago when Sven Smet, a senior partner at McKinsey, asked for the unusual, time off to care for his young daughter. 
This is from our Rookie Moment series, which you can find on McKinsey.com. When I was an associate, which is a long time ago, we actually still were on a schedule at McKinsey that on Saturday morning, we would have our training days once every two weeks. They were great fun, you know, we learned a lot, but you know, it was on a Saturday, kind of atypical if you compare it in these days. And I would also say there was a ethos in the firm that if you were to go home at six, people would jokingly tell you, are you taking the afternoon off? And for many personal reasons, uh, particularly because I wanted to be with my daughter and help her grow up, I had decided that I wanted to go part-time. And I was the first male person in McKinsey that would consider there was one woman before me that actually did work part-time. And, you know, I was young, had no reputation whatsoever to come for and so on. And I had to explain this to my office manager, who was of the entire spectrum of hard workers, the most hardworking uh, person. And I remember that my feeling was that I would go into his office and say, I'm going to go work part time. It's at least, you know, be home on time on Wednesday and Thursday and not be traveling on those days and Friday take off to be able to care for my daughter. And I thought he would just basically say that's not possible. So I had sort of resigned mentally almost to the fact that I would be resigning by saying this. And to his credit, he said, well, probably you're going to do this better than I did. Good luck. <laughs> there was a lot of good luck and I learned a lot from actually going part time and doing it for the first time. This might be a dated story for those of you that hear it now, because in 1996, this was quite unusual. At the moment, this is totally usual in our firm. It's not even a question when people bring it up. We know how to do it and we're well organized. But at that time, I fully thought I would be leaving the firm by asking the question. And I was proud that this person said, you'll be able to do it. Good luck. And, you know, I had some luck. I'm still here. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.